Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Oh, press it. I've pressed it. I've pressed the magic button, Andy. <laughs> oh, let the magic begin. Let the magic begin. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, my what, goodness. Uh, so how, loopy start. No, no, no. I want to talk about... Man, can you believe the Prometheus trailer? I know, I know. Ah. It's 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 stunning. I actually there's a website that I uh frequent where they actually did a shot by shot analysis of it and then they re-edited it in what they think is is chronological order according we're, to the film. <laughs> we're already doing the re-editing of assets from this movie. It's not I'm, out yet. I know, I know. It was it was incredible. So um but it's really, really uh mind blowing. I am just I cannot wait. Ah. And I think it's pretty much um, there's no question anymore that it does deal with the spaceship, the origins really of that spaceship that we, yeah. the discovery of that spaceship that we find in Alien. Absolutely. With the, with the space jockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, absolutely. I mean, no contest. Uh, and the and the just when they they just like dip in their fingers in the little pod like things mm. the goo yeah new me new me uh new me doesn't look like uh doesn't look like what's her name she looks like, like a person <laughs> yeah, oh you mean like lizbeth lizbeth Lizbe yeah she doesn't look, new me doesn't look like lizbeth no she looks she looks she like looks a real awesome. person she's she's just smoking i'm sorry yeah. No, it's great. She's a beautiful person. It, it, it looks really, really great. I cannot wait. I can't wait. I know. And uh, just just everything about it, all the actors and everything. And all just... the light and dark and all of the goo. June 8th. The June ships. 8th, and... I know. We're going to be talking about that one here. Oh, man. Can't wait. I like that uh, that John Lindelof. Damon? I like. I mean, Damon Lindelof. See, I'm like, I, I'm like, because uh, it was written. Uh, it was Damon Lindelof and uh, what's his John uh, Spastic. What's his name? I don't know. Hang I'm on. gonna let you. I'm gonna let you pull yourself out of this one. Typey, 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 typey. Damon Lindelof and John Spates. Spates. S P A I H T S. It has nothing to do with Spastic. There's not there's not even a relation to Spastic. <laughs> John Spastic. That's what I was thinking of. Damon Lindelof. I like him. I do mm -hmm. like him. I like him. I like his personalities. Right. I watch a lot of his uh, a lot of his uh, during the Lost uh, years. Yeah. I watched a yeah. lot of his behind the scenes like uh, stuff. 
He's good. He's, he's big, a, a big fan of the way he thinks. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I hear you. What else have we seen uh, this week? What else is uh, hot this week? I still Did haven't you... seen John Carter yet, so I, I got to hold on. Oh, well, good. We don't have all to talk of the, about that. All then. the reviews that I'm reading are like of the people who like it. They're all saying, man, that's a good movie. People should see it. Too bad it's totally flopping. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's It'll like it is a. Before you know yeah, it. Yeah, it's like a fish on a hot dock. Like it is, it's just flapping around, kind of. It's got its mouth is. Yeah. It's just there's nothing left, and yet it's. I've heard I've everybody who's that that I've talked to who's seen it is like you got to give this movie some credit. I haven't heard anyone say that, so I'm I glad hang, you. Have. I hang out with much happier people than you do. People who are so. willing to give the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all my friends are sad, bitter, lonely. They're sad. People. They're dark people. <laughs> they're sad and mean spirited people. Yeah, that's them. All right. So you know what else I me. saw this week, um, uh, trailer-wise or you know, extended footage-wise, whatever you want to call it, was um, more of Snow White and the Huntsman. Oh man! Okay. So, yeah. Tell me what you tell me what I you was, thought. I well, I, you know, there's the two dueling Snow White movies coming out, yes. and I, you know, the first one, Mirror Mirror, looks like a fun one to take my daughter to. Yeah. Um, and, and the Snow White and the Huntsman. The Does only not. thing I really knew about it was that it was the script was on the blacklist, which if uh, people aren't familiar with what the blacklist is, every year at the end of uh, the year, all of the executives and, and all the big wigs in Hollywood submit to, I don't know who, somebody, all of the scripts that they think were the best reads that they read that year that still haven't been produced or picked up by anybody. And... Snow White and the Huntsman was on that list, um, I think, two years ago. Hmm. And so um, now, obviously, the script was picked up and it's being made into this film that's coming out this summer. And I got to say, I it really knocked my socks off watching the trailer for it. It really, um, you know, it's it's as believable and strong a fantasy world as the um, – the Lord of the Rings, the whole Middle Earth world from Lord of the Rings. It's just a really amazing looking world that they've created for that film. I, um, I know not much about the, um, the, the original sort of the time of the story, like when the story was being sort of initially being told. Uh, but from what I have heard uh, by those who know more than I do, uh, is that the the writers or, or the writer Evan Darty why D too many G's and H's in names tonight? I'm gonna <laughs> mess a lot of that up. Evan Darty yeah. uh, it, it did some significant research to get it right, and and that this movie as kind of weird and and there's this weird sort of when you add huntsman to snow white it it shakes your context just enough there's, there's that sort of cognitive dissonance about what the story could be about because we're so used to the fairy tale mm -hmm. um that that once you get over that you realize that this was the, that they've taken great pains to uh to tell the story um in in its own sort of very historically accurate uh, way. And, uh, so I'm, I am really excited to, to see this movie. It looks really cool. I'm, yeah. I'm very excited. And the art, you know, the art direction it. looks just stunning. 
Yeah, and I love that they're using the same technique that they did in Lord of the Rings to create the the seven dwarves. They're mm-hmm. basically they've cast regular actors, and they have shrunk them all. Um, so you've got great people like Toby Jones and Bob Hoskins playing some of the dwarves. Mm-hmm. So I think it's fantastic. Uh, speaking of this, you know, it's not a, a movie, right? But I want to talk about Game of Thrones just a little bit. Oh yeah, because you've been watching that. I uh, I totally cracked out on it. <laughs> I uh, you know, uh, my wife's been out of town this week, and so I went ahead and just did the whole thing and and read the book, and so it's taken me about two weeks to get through the entire season one. And wow. the first book, Game of Thrones in the uh, Ice and Fire, Song of Ice and Fire uh, saga series. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I don't remember seeing an adaptation done quite as well as I as this. Uh, wow. I, I feel like what they did with the books or the book in order to tell the story in 10 episodes uh, was as accurate and sp- I mean spot on pitch perfect uh, as I have seen done in an adaptation recently. I mean I'm, hmm. I think back to I'm I'm trying to think of the other big adaptations. Harry Potter is the big one that comes to mind, mm-hmm. and I, I see you know uh, uh, J.K. Rowling is having that same level of kind of involvement. Uh, of of an author with a screenwriter, and and I know uh, George uh, Martin was very involved in the adaptation uh, to the HBO series, but I can't think of any others that even come close to mm. capturing the world that he has created, the world of, of sort of Westeros, and and it is great. It is so great. I mean, there are so many of those just like oh. Man, they just kicked me in the face. Moments that that was that are just terrific. It's to the point where you you feel it's a saga. Like you can really feel that they're committing to this long term storytelling. You know the the Ice and Fire that is projected to have seven books. There are I think five out now. Right. And um, and it's to the point where you know Sean Bean. Are you gonna Are you gonna watch it? Can I well, I know it? what happens. Okay, so you know what I, I did not. Oddly know. enough, I was like, I was on a road trip or something. I turned on HBO, and, and there it was that was the one scene that I saw. I was are like, you kidding wow. me? No, and I had no context to the entire story. Um, and I was just like, oh, okay, well, this is you know, that's kind of an interesting scene without realizing that I was watching the climactic moment of the final episode. <laughs> well, and, and you know, that was what was so great, right? Because I think it was, I think it was like episode seven or eight or something. I mean, they're in, in the 10 episodes. So there is, there is sort of a denouement to the, to the, to that storyline. But what, what is so great about just the, the overall storytelling and the way they did that, they, I did not see it coming. You know, this character, Sean Bean, I, I felt like he was the guy like yeah. he was the protagonist of this series. Right. And and spoiler alert, they lobbed off his head in front of his young daughters and the the kingdom. Like they they executed him uh in a surprise turn. Um and I, man, I did not see it coming. I hadn't read that far in the book yet. And um uh and so it, it you know, then you realize that this story is much bigger, much bigger than than uh, uh, than you sort of anticipate if you're just watching the show and you hadn't you didn't know anything about this series of books. 
and and now I'm I'm into the second uh, I'm into the second book. I'm almost halfway through the second book, and it is uh, it's just carries absolutely carries right along. I don't know what's going to happen. That um, uh, Peter Dinklage mm-hmm. uh, is plays a, a dwarf uh, in in this um, uh, in the series, and is one of the most sort of rewarding transformations from book or adaptations of character from book to screen. I mean, he just nails it. And now all I'm, all I'm thinking every time I think about what the next page I turn is, please don't let this character's head get cut off. <laughs> Cause I, they'll do that to me. I feel oh, like that's that. funny. Uh, I have one other. Sw- Go ahead. You're, you're going to say something. Oh, no, no. Uh, well, I was going to say he won a um, golden globe for that too, for his yeah. performance in that. He, he is, I, it's the best thing I've seen him in. Um, yeah. He's he's really great. Uh, his character is, you know, it's it's one of the most sort of complex antihero characters that that you know that I and, and I think that that really goes for for all of the characters on this show is is that they are they they are written at a level of depth that is um, uh, really rewarding to invest in. Uh, and and so speaking also of the small screen, I feel like this is my small screen review segment. I guess so. Uh, the uh, you know we saw the the season two finale of um, of uh, my favorite zombie show, The Walking Dead. Don't say anything about it because I've only just finished season one, and so I don't want to know anything that's happened in season two yet. <clears throat> <clears throat> and I can't find out because it's not available yet on Netflix. I've got to twiddle my thumbs for a little while. This is going to be very difficult uh, because it probably won't hit Netflix until September uh, (laughs) because season three kicks off in October. So that's usually right. They they give you about 30 days of the promotional uh, window to catch up. Um, I will, um, my impression, I will just tell you, Mm -hmm. I quite, uh, I quite enjoyed the season finale. Uh, I really like what it sets up for season three. Mm-hmm. And I think all of the people who agree with me could fit in my office right now. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, Interesting. You know, no, I, I like, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who still really like the show, but but there's a lot of criticism of season two and that, that season two was like, you know, they're equating with lost season two. That there, there was, this is the dark before the dawn, you know, mm. uh, and that it, it, there were some tough episodes to get through in season two. It was not like season one. It's like they had, they expanded the season to 13 episodes and, and the same six of them were good, you know from oh. season one, which was only six episodes. So I, I don't know. It's like they just ran out of steam. But but I think the last two episodes have been very, very strong, and they're getting back in, in alignment with the comic in many ways. And I, I like that, the graphic novel. So I, I have one more thing to talk about, small screen coming soon, uh, which the the trailer, I think the trailer just hit this week. Uh, if, if so, I discovered it this week, if it's been out longer. But that is the um, um, uh, Blood and Chrome so say we all. Are you up on this? Do you know? I don't know. Is? I have no <gasps> idea. <what you're> <gasps> oh, Andrew, Blood and Chrome is the next uh, Battlestar Galactica um, show oh, series. Really? And uh, and and so uh, what I what I've heard about this is that the team has gone back and they have said, you know what we we have this <laughs> we have these awesome assets. We have people who really love the Adamas and really love the BSG universe and really want to get out of 
the BSG universe, like there's a hole missing. There's like a void missing in in this kind of storytelling, this sort of, um, you know, heavy political kind of action oriented uh, science fiction programming. Right. And uh, and and they tried to do something different with uh, Caprica, uh, which I quite liked. Um, uh, you know, it was a very different show. And I think people were expecting it to be more of a prequel with the same general tone and tenor of Battlestar Galactica. And it was not. Um, it was a very different kind of show. And it didn't didn't make it very far. Um, but this show apparently takes place uh, just uh, like 10 years after the start of the first Cylon War, and right as Bill Adama is assigned as a fighter pilot to the brand new flagship Galactica. So oh. we're not dealing with Galactica, the just turned into a museum piece. We're dealing with Galactica as a pride of the fleet piece and and the the season kick or the sh- series kicks off where the you know grizzled uh captain admiral of the ship and uh the young bill adama are um you know trying to um uh, are, are trying to, uh, you know, find a place to agree. And there's a big, you know, uh, battle, a skirmish that ends up being a turning point of the war. And, and the trailer that hit the web this week is freaking awesome. Wow. I'll have to check that out. Blood and Chrome, huh? Yeah. And it's, and the, the trailer, they, they chose to go with the uh, immigrant, uh, song for the soundtrack for the trailer. Really? <laughs> it's, it's a popular trailer song. It is right a very now. popular trailer song. It's the Karen O version from uh, uh, Dragon Tattoo. Oh, really? That's, yes. And, <laughs> that's and even more interesting. It is even more interesting. And I'm watching it. I think I thought I was totally spoiled uh, to that song from the open to Dragon Tattoo, but I'll tell you, it is so great. I, I had to go back. I cranked up iTunes and I, I turned it up real loud and I just sort of sat here and enjoyed myself to it. It was oh, it's funny. great. It's a great trailer. Cool. I'll so, have to check that one out. Lots of good small screen stuff coming. Really, Prometheus is the big thing. Prometheus and Snow White and the Huntsman. What is there anything else we need to talk about before we jump into this thing? Well, we'll just mention that you know Hunger Games opens this weekend, which hopefully I'll get out t- uh, to watch at some point, and we can chat about it next. Is that week. is that something we're supposed to be excited about? I will go see. Yeah, it. Yeah, it is. It is it's something we're supposed to be more excited about than John Carter. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I was. Oh. I, I'm. I'm honestly. I'm glad you said something. I have not been excited about this movie. I've totally been writing it off as as a, um, an adaptation of a book that I'm also not supposed to care much about. And you're telling me otherwise. I'm gonna go see it. Yeah, go see it. Okay. All right. Yes. And we'll talk about it next week too. Give Sounds mini, mini good. Review. All right. So what are we? Uh, what are we doing tonight? So this week we're talking about a fantastic film from 1971, Clute. Clute, John Clute. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it? Can we? <sighs> <laughs> I had. Uh, okay, I thought that I had not actually seen this movie. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought that I, I. I mean, this was one of the ones I was going to write off as a movie that you know was a movie we like, and the we was in quotes, and I was going to see it, <laughs> and then I would fall in love with it, uh, and, and that we it would be one of those things. And it turns out I had seen this movie. Okay. And there was a lot to really, really like about this movie. Okay. Uh, and I have. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think it's complicated by the fact that I have zero nostalgia for the 1970s. Oh, well, it is. It definitely feels 70s. And and that's the thing when you look at and so what I would like to hear from you, the filmmaker, and I say that with a capital F. <laughs> You are a, I call you, okay, and a capital L, too. There's two capital letters. What is it about, that is, that, that is so special about 1970s cinema that has so many uh, cinema pundits saying that, that these films uh, were defining for modern cinema? Well, what happened was, I mean, we were coming off of a time, you know, where it was just a lot of big studio films. And obviously there was a big, you know, change in society with the 60s and, and you know, the whole hippie movement and make make love, not war and all of that sort of thing. And so the mentality started shifting. And what happened was people started making, in a sense, uh, a more independent style of film. It was much more personal, much more gritty. Uh, they were not afraid to show things that were uh, more raw. And that was a big difference from the style of films that had been going on through the 50s and 60s. And because that's, you know, 50s and 60s, you know, it was all, you know, the, the, all of the war movies were very patriotic war movies. You had all these just lovely, wonderful technicolor musicals and everything. It, it was a very different style. And then starting in the late 60s, it, it really shifted and you had this real um, solid group of filmmakers who were making films that were darker, were grittier, were more about um, real emotions, about real people that weren't afraid to to delve into kind of the dirtiness of and messiness of life. And so that's really what happened in the 70s. And, um, and also because of the things happening in politics with Watergate and everything, people started getting more um, – you know, less comfortable with the government, you know, more suspicious of things, conspiracy theories cropped up. And so that kind of, that came in as well, all of the paranoia and everything. And then Vietnam War, it just, it really snowballed. And then that style really had a, a big swell in the 70s. And it's definitely still continued. But the other thing that happened in the 70s was that's when the real blockbusters were born starting uh, pretty much with like Jaws and Star Wars. And those two films created a whole new burst for the um, for the studios that has been continuing to this day. And we see that with all the giant, ridiculously expensive tentpole um, movies that they make every summer and all that. So, you know, the 70s was a, a big time for both of those sorts of films. And that's really, I think, why so many people look at the 70s as such a pivotal point for filmmaking. It really changed the history. Yeah, I you know okay, I can I can see that, and I I what I really like about your description of it is that is is that it puts it in sort of this historical context of uh, you know what was uh, what was coming out at the time and what was going on historically at the time that actually you know sort of spurred the style of of filmmaking. It's it's 
you know, I like to say that there is this sort of mirror that the filmmakers are holding up to us, and they want us to look at something about ourselves, and we just have to be bright enough and brave enough to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 when you look at the movies that were extremely successful in the 1970s, right? I mean, I, you know, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, I think, was the number one uh, film in the 70s. Uh, the French Connection, I think, is is one that that really is um, commonly co- uh, uh, paralleled to Clute. Uh, yeah, same it's a, year. Same year, and a, a very different style of, um, a, a a different style of, or, or a different pace, uh, similar style, different pace, but Roy Scheider, uh, you know, and really, how can you go wrong with a Roy Scheider? Yeah, it, it was definitely his his decade. It was his de- <laughs> it was his decade. Um, Dirty Harry, uh, you know, uh, these these sorts of, um, you know, the gritty. Um, the the gritty sort of detective films, mm-hmm. uh, where everything is filthy, right? The, yeah. and, and I think that's one of the things that is sort of celebrated when when you look at the world that is portrayed in these movies. Everything is filthy and just sort of this close to falling apart. Uh, and um, and, and I think that's important because when we look at at films today that are set in the fi- in the seventies, you can sort of get a sense that they were set in the 70s to look kind of filthy but the there was a real intention with why 70s films look the way they do because of that historical sort of context of mistrust and uh this new awareness of greed uh and the all of these the, the this sort of um, uh, materialism and, and that that is just sort of spiking uh you know in the in the 70s and building in the 70s toward yeah uh, toward you know the real celebration of of these concepts in the 80s um and so you know in many respects clute in 1971 was sort of a harbinger of things to come uh in, in terms of the style and tone of the film it was and it, yeah if you look at those films that you just mentioned i mean they definitely took a very different turn when you came to clute uh kind of early in the 70s and it kind of led in a way, it kind of led the way for the the rest of these films in the seventies. I mean, even if you look at a movie like Bullet, which was just a few years before Clute, it is not nearly. I mean, sure, there's there's blood, there's great chases, and it certainly has a little more of that that rougher edge. But it's not nearly as dark or foreboding as a film like Clute. And a big part of that um, falls on the shoulders of Gordon Willis, the uh, cinematographer, who really, essentially, is a you could say is a person who almost defined this look of the seventies, um, starting with this film, he really kind of gave birth to the whole, um, the dark nature of, of, um, this, this really dark world of, a within a film where you don't see everything in the frame. The walls aren't all lit. Everything is very, um, you know, he he lit like for Clute, he lit pretty much just from the top, which um, he stayed away from lighting from the floor. And by lighting from up high, he created eye shadows that are much more natural and something that we're used to seeing. But at the time, it was a it was a very, you know, new thing. People weren't used to seeing that. And then if you follow his work from that to Godfather and Godfather 2, he 
excuse me, he kept that same sort of thing up where he really wasn't lighting the walls. It was just light on people and then just pools of darkness. And mm -hmm. it really helped create that whole look. Yeah, I really, you feel, I mean, you mentioned Godfather. It's that, that is sort of masters that, that look, I mean, that is a master's class in, in, uh, that terrifying, you know, what ends up being that terrifyingly dramatic, uh, you know, key light from above, Mm -hmm. uh, style and and boy you really get that i mean you mentioned that sort of compressed um uh there, there's a sort of compression to clute uh where i mean it's just chock full of close-ups yeah. and and it ends up you know you you sort of you know when somebody your kid tells you a joke and it's it's you know it's a little funny and then it's not funny then it's kind of annoying but then it's funny again uh-huh that that's sort of the same feeling I get with with these this this sort of um, compression. I feel like I'm in a sardine can, and and uh, uh, you know you, you it starts out and you're just following these these the faces of these actors, and 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 they're just you know going about their daily lives, and I want to talk about that in a second. Uh, but they're going about their daily lives, and you're just watching them. They're doing it, going in the refrigerator. They're getting it, they're doing a the thing. They're walking outside. They're doing a the thing close up on a face, close up on a this, close up on a this. Maybe we get a medium shot of somebody taking a shirt off, and then it comes back to a close up. And and eventually you realize that, you know, by the time you get to the payoff uh, at, at the end, um, you, you realize that you are, you are, this is a locked room kind of a thing. The, the framing creates a, a locked room of, of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word paranoia because I feel like that's going to get overused in this conversation. But, but that that's the experience that you have when you are Bree uh, sitting in the room with Cable at the end of the at the end of the film. Yeah, well, and I, I think you're 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 right. I think that he the the uh, the camera work really plays into that. Um, you know, compressing things, but at the same time, I think it also creates some really. Um, he, there are quite a few wide shots in here where they're really wide, yeah. um, creating really interesting tableaus where it almost diminishes the person within this overbearing world, right? Absolutely, because like, there is always something in the way. Like the, the, the depth of field that is, is of, of just objects that are yeah. constantly obstructing a clean view. Mm -hmm. uh, Go ahead. I interrupted you. Well, no, I was going to say, I, I think one of the most interesting shots is when we first um, meet Brie. And she, this is Brie Daniel. Um, we, should we mention what the story is? <laughs> yeah, we probably should. But, you know, we, we should. You, do, do the story. What, so what is the story about? So, so the story is um, a man goes missing. His name is Tom Gruneman. He's uh, from a Pennsylvania town. And his cop friend... John Clute is hired by somebody at Gruneman's company, um, Cable, who to basically investigate because they don't feel that the FBI is doing good a good enough job. The only lead that they have are these really dirty letters that Tom Gruneman wrote to this call girl, Bree Daniels, in New York. And so John Clute goes and starts he introduces himself to her trying to find out information he starts like tapping her lines listening to her conversations and basically starts kind of you know this odd voyeuristic relationship with her um, trying to get information about what happened to tom gruneman and in the process he solves the crime um, 
but also builds this relationship with Bree Daniels, who's been trying to get out of the business, trying to start an acting career and all this sort of stuff. And um, it, I mean, in a way, I think this film is more of a character study of these people than it is an actual thriller, because in all honesty, it's not very thrilling because the killer is pretty much revealed very early very in early in the film yeah we find out that that cable has been behind all of this right from the start and so really it's less of a who done it and it's more of a will clute figure it out and save her in time yeah, sort of yeah story yeah no it's definitely a rescue story yeah. um but um but but I want to get back to that real life point because the thing that I walk away with with this movie after you know just sort of letting it kind of wash over me is is uh, one of the things I like so much about the style is that this movie is made in transitions of life right mm -hmm. I mean this this movie is not about action bump action bump action it's about watching people evolve through the things they do day to day that are just sort of mundane they go into auditions and they go uh, you know they they just live their lives and and so i i find that um you know uh, pakula alan j pakula yeah, yeah pakula right uh it takes a great sort of um methodical approach uh, to to building up the the lives of these people, and so when you say it's a character study, I think you're 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 really right on uh, because this is not a movie that celebrates the action of the of the 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 investigation. The investigation is frankly not interesting, right? Um, uh, uh, really, in, until the very end. When, when the race kind of kicks in, it's that last sort of 15 minutes when you realize that there is a race that is, um, you know, that, that Clute is, is running and now he has to track down uh, Bree. And, uh, and, and I find that it, it all builds up to, uh, or the buildup is really fast from yeah. this sort of, you know, kind of methodical plod watching Bree kind of change her life through her relationship with Clute to, oh my God, she's in the room. Uh, with you know cable and right. it is one of the most haunting sort of scenes of of realization that you know and, and when you say you know that sort of 70s style of dark kind of showing you things that you may not have seen this really was it yeah i mean didn't you think that that the uh listening to the tape the tapes but, end up being pretty uh a, a pretty gruesome it's, yeah it's tool. A really it's a really haunting tool. It's really um, very terrifying. Well, the whole thing at the end, uh, I mean, that whole, you know, in this clothing factory and everything, it's just, it's such a terrifying place. And when she's walking down and she finally realizes that Clute or that, that Cable is there watching her and he's standing and it cuts to that close up of, of him behind that wall of plastic. The music also by Michael Small is is terrific, yeah. and and this scene absolutely highlights the score. Yeah, his his score is stunning. He's very great at seventies um, thriller yeah. scores. Um, but you know, and that moment is just so terrifying. And then you're right, that whole scene where where Cable plays the tape for for Bree, where he um, killed Arlen Page, her friend. 
I mean, it's just it's terrifying and you just have it's just two shots it's a shot of Bree's face as she listens to this tape and and relives their this her friend's last moments and shots of of cable as he listens to it and watches her reaction i mean it's just terrifying and you can see in in this moment along with so many throughout the film you can see why jane fonda rightly won an oscar for this role i mean she's just it's it's such a heartbreaking role like moment to watch somebody have to suffer through you know uh it it the the experience of of watching uh <laughs> watching cable uh played by uh, charles i think it, is it coffee 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 or coffee i don't coffee, know yeah. charles coffee is is uh, one of the things that about his performance in particular you know he's just kind of the the dirty old man for most of the movie mm-hmm. uh but what really comes out in this final scene he's having this conversation with her and he's coming to his own sense of sort of realization this whole time you know, uh, mm-hmm. but but the way his conversation, the way his language uh, is is uh, um, sort of being presented to us, he is so calm. But it's not murderously calm. It's not demonic calm. It's it's a guy who is so comfortable with who he is as a businessman. As a man who, you know, has a really dark side when he goes and sees hookers, uh, and as a guy who's really about to, you know, kill this woman sitting with him, and and getting really his the, the, this sort of mechanical satisfaction out of playing the tape of him doing the same thing with Bree's friend. Mm-hmm. And the tape, it's the exact same voice. It's the same voice saying, you know, my name is Peter Cable and I'm being very forthright with you. So, you know, my intentions are not, you know, or my intentions are pure, whatever he says. Oh, why don't you just turn your head this way? Turn, don't, no, you can just lay down here, just sit down here. And then she starts screaming. Right. And, and that is the moment that you realize this movie just got me. Like this was an hour and 49 minute build up to right now. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that is like right before he plays the tape, he's talking to her and it's almost like like you were saying he's that in that very controlled way, he's talking through things like ex- almost this weird moment of self-examination yeah. when he's realizing that Clute was kind of setting him up and all this stuff. But he says, you know, I've done terrible things, but I can't consider myself a terrible man. Right. I've killed three people and I'd still want to say it was an accident. Do you see? It's like. And it's like this is a perfect example of what they always say is that the antagonist of your film never sees themselves as the bad guy. Right. Well, and he actually says, uh, and you've got the script open, right? Yeah. Uh, what is the line he says? So uh, it really doesn't matter what I do. Yeah. Right? It's, what is that yeah, line? Because that, 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 that line. It doesn't matter what I do anymore, does it, it? Yeah. So it doesn't. The way Charles Coffey delivers that move, that line is. Like that is a, a pivotal uh, sort of character transition for him, right? Mm-hmm. But it it is mechanical, not emotional. Yeah. Well, it makes you wonder because you know he ends up committing suicide. It, it makes you wonder if Clute hadn't shown up at that moment, if he would have still committed suicide, like after he had killed Bree, or or what would have happened. 
Yeah. Uh, if he would have fled, because now he knows everybody knows it's him. Like, where does that leave him? So, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty interesting moment of realization that he's had there. There, it really is. Uh, you know, his. So he works at, uh, works at the same company from Gruneman, who through this process we learn is has been completely, you know, posthumously exonerated from all wrongdoing and the letters and everybody. He's he never wrote the letters, right? I mean, right, did I right. did I read that right? But yeah, he never uh, wrote them. He never wrote those letters. He was he was a good guy, and I think we only see him in the very opening sequence at dinner. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, he's just in that the um the opening Thanksgiving scene um and then we only see his photo the rest of the time. Right. And there's some, you know, there's some it's it, I found that opening scene really interesting. Uh the way that it, I, I don't know if I would characterize it as a a 70s style of sound design. Um but there is this sense that I get from many movies of this era where it is okay to have a lot of people talking over one another yeah. if you can artfully have the one that you need to hear come out. And this yeah. was something that was used a lot in Jaws. Uh you know, there are there's a lot of just crazy beach voice. Yeah, uh, and it, Robert Altman, it's I mean, he really is oh, the Robert Altman, director absolutely. Who, who really perfected that. And I mean he, he really made that his own style of of mm -hmm. of filmmaking where he would do that where he'd have a lot of actors just going on and doing their own thing and he would have them all mic'd individually and then in the editing he could manipulate which one he wanted to uh, focus on so it's it definitely um is an interesting way and actually that opening is also something i was saying earlier about the tableaus and how it really paints it's almost like a painterly image when we open it's just this it's a very kind of flat shot across the whole table right yeah and you just see them all sitting there at the table having this thanksgiving meal um or whatever it is they're eating and it's just it's very kind of static shots of this, and then we establish the different characters and and pan across them and stuff. But it's it's just very um, it's, it's it's just this it's a very it's just like a painted image of this thing, and then that paired with that interesting audio, it just you know in I don't know how long it was all of thirty seconds or something, mm -hmm. it just creates this environment for us. It's really really interesting open. It is because without really, uh, without showing us a lot of action, they actually establish a, a really pivotal relationship between John Clute and Gruneman. And that sets up uh, Donald Sutherland, uh, Donald Sutherland's John Clute, um, uh, for, for his whole reason for taking this on. And they make a big deal out of the fact that he has never, once he has uh, retired, uh, you know, and now a private detective, uh, once he takes this case on, they say, you know, have you ever done a missing persons case? No. Have you ever spent much time in the city where you're in New York City where you're going to be? No, I never have. Uh, and suddenly we realize that it's because he has this deep relationship with Gruneman who, you know, he was at the dinner party with. Uh, earlier that there and and to do that in a you know 25 second tableau at dinner um you know that's that's efficient mm -hmm. uh, yeah and, and, and it's it's and it's very efficient the way that it it does this amazing jump cut right there yeah. to an empty chair to an empty chair and then you just hear the police talking about how tom is missing 
And then you realize that it's six months later and uh, – well, no, I guess it's not six months later at that point. But you realize that you know now he's missing and they're doing this investigation. It's a really interesting way to just get you right into the story. I thought it was fantastic. It was fantastic. Um, yeah. Now, this, this movie is considered the first in a, um, uh, a three-movie informal trilogy called the, the Paranoia Trilogy. Yeah, Alan J. Um, Pakula's Paranoia Trilogy. This – the Parallax View in 74 and All the President's Men in 76. Uh, and so that's – talk about uh, paranoia. Well, I think that the nature of this film, aside from the fact that the thriller aspect isn't very thrilling, it still is about paranoia. Something about Brie Daniel that we establish early on is that she's a very paranoid character. She feels people are following her. People uh, are following her. <laughs> and in, all, in reality, people are. That's why she's <laughs> like John. And, let's not forget John Clute himself. The 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 investigator sets up an apartment in her building, right. taps all her phone phone calls, and follows her around. Right. Well, and that's something else about the paranoia is not only are people following her, um, we're watching both Clute follow her and eavesdrop on her conversations, as well as Cable, right? We see him exactly. kind of stalking her from across the street. We see him sitting up in his very, you know, lofty office um, up in this skyscraper, uh, like a you know king of the world sort of you know power figure, listening to her conversations with this crazy painting or not painting, but a photo of like the moon landing behind him. It was a very strange um, art direction in that, right? Uh, which really that was does bizarre. That was with the giant door. Uh, yeah, the giant door that that's a, a photo of the moon landing, and then the it's, that's a really interesting frame. The way that that shot is framed because the lights are reflecting on the ceiling above his head, and they look like rays of light shooting out of his head, and he looks <laughs> he literally looks like he is this god sitting on top of everything, even like he's so high up in the atmosphere that he is up with the moon. It's an amazingly interesting way to portray that this guy is in this place where he thinks he's above everybody. That is, I, I to me, that's the, the sort of, uh, that's the paranoia that sticks out to me the most, which is the, the mistrust when when Donald Sutherland goes to coffee or when when Clute goes to cable mm -hmm. and says I need you to wire me 500 bucks so I can buy this address book right that what what that means uh in in the plot is that you know Clute has come to this realization that the guy he is working for cable is also the villain right and the villain in this case is um not just this guy who who has a dark side but he is you know he has been portrayed all along as the ivory tower guy he is institutional wealth he is you know he represents um you know the the big business that we are just now in the early 70s realizing that we probably shouldn't trust yeah. and that's the transition you you get that i think donald sutherland plays really well um in in this film which is you know i i get it i think i i think i get it now that i have just been played by 
by big business and by this guy at a big company who thinks he can control me. Yeah, uh, exactly. And play me. And and I think this, you know, we talked about how this this movie was just sort of the the forebearer of of many other movies uh that that make that statement so much more clear, you know, when you you get to sort of the um you, you, the parallax view which is just weird. There's a lot of weird <laughs> uh, with with the parallax view and and all the president's men and and you know uh network which is a, a film that does the same thing and does it really quite blatantly and baldly like there is no metaphor in this movie it is uh, you know uh you know uh the the um ned Beatty speech in the conference room right 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 uh is is absolutely legendary uh, for for calling out the world of business and and exactly. for what it is and and I think that's what we're building to we're starting here with this movie this is the historical right. sort of artistic con- context and we're moving toward that which is the sense of cultural uh, revelation yeah man that's heavy God that's know, really good. good that is <laughs> oh man it's good yeah. stuff. So there is. I uh, go ahead. You say more. What's your you bring well, more genius? <laughs> the um, I, I the other interesting thing about the paranoia that this film establishes, or I shouldn't say it establishes, but it's actually continuing from you know other filmmakers like Alfred Hitchcock and from Blow Up and um, other ones like Peeping Tom is that not only. Are we watching all of these people, you know, following and we're getting this sense, but we ourselves are becoming the voyeurs. And it's almost as if the filmmaker is pointing out that we're voyeurs as well. Like when we're when we're watching Brie through the roof, through her mm-hmm. um, skylight, mm-hmm. we've all of a sudden now we are the voyeurs. And now it's it's this really interesting look at, you know, at the whole side of paranoia as far as who's watching and, and what does it really mean? Which also really plays interestingly with the whole nature of being a call girl um, and, oddly enough, also being an actor and how the whole nature of that is is somebody in front of you essentially putting on a show for you, you know. Mm. It really it really does bring the whole thing forward about what it is to be a voyeur and uh, it, it's an interesting take on the whole paranoia look at things. You know, I think uh, I think this is one of those movies that you have to look at like this in order to really enjoy it. Yeah, because it's an easy one to to let go. It is. You have to really um, look at what else is going on here. I I made the mistake when I first watched this years ago of dismissing it because I was just expecting a thriller. Yeah, it's like oh okay, well there you go. That wasn't really that thrilling. <laughs> so, and and watching it. You know, time and time again since then, I'm like, oh, I, I started really seeing what they were doing with it, and looking at how the uh, the the characters were were developing and the relationship there and the mistrust and just all of that stuff going on in here. It's it's a much more interesting film when you are looking at it um, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is it. I I, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if the same. I mean, it held up well, right? And it was a it was a profitable movie. We didn't run the numbers, but it, you know, from what I gather, and you'll go into your backroom 
you know it does it's it's too uh old to have all of that info input um I mean, it made twelve and a half million at the box office, which I, at the time I think was probably pretty good. But I don't know what the budget was. I can't. I, I think it was two point five. Okay. Uh, it was what I look at you with your found. your uh, you got all the secrets now. <laughs> totally crushing it, right? That was great. I, I totally pulled that out of nowhere. Of course, yeah. what I'm struggling with, I have like thirty five tabs open, and so I can't <laughs> actually find which one actually yeah, I, confirms I I that. Tabs open now. Um, yeah, so two point five. Okay, uh, box office budget two point five estimated from uh, this is IMDb. So, ah, okay. um, well, and yeah, no, you know, so it 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 made money, and I think for for nineteen seventy one, this was obviously pre Jaws and pre Star Wars, uh, and so that was uh, seems to me to be a respectable um, film. Yeah, it, this was only this was Pakula's uh, second film, right? The second one that he directed, he had been producing films. Uh, this is interesting. You know, he had been producing films uh, since, you know, he was in his 30s. So um, uh, he started – his first film that he produced was with uh, Robert Mulligan in about 57. And then he and Mulligan uh, created a production company, the first film of which was – and this was, I think, 62. The first film of which was um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, uh, you know, that of course got all sorts of accolades. And then he continued producing for a while, but then this was the first film that he actually directed. And uh, sorry, the second, second film, film that he directed. The first film was um, just before that is the Sterile Cuckoo, um, which I haven't seen. Well, but but uh, apparently um, Liza Minnelli does quite a. Um, quite a good turn in it. Interesting uh, sort of cast of leading ladies he gets to work with. So Jane Fonda plays um, plays Brie, and uh, what do we what do we think of Jane Fonda? I mean, you know, you know everyone has their opinions of Jane Fonda. Um, I think that she's uh, she can be a very powerful actress. You know, she's done some some great films. Um, I think. You know, she she certainly had her had her um, time being very vocal with her political activism, which I think turned a lot of people um, against her. And I think there's just not as many people that interested in her anymore. Uh, and then, of course, she did her um, uh, exercise videos. I remember my mom working out with her all the time on her little videos and everything. But I mean, you know, she, you know, she had a great run of films in the sixties and seventies. You know, she was in just lots of great things like Cat Baloo, uh, Barefoot in the Park, Barbarella. They shoot horses, don't they? Um, China Syndrome. Seriously. Yeah. China Talk Syndrome. about a great disaster movie. Oh, I know. Uh, That's a great one. On Golden Pond. On I Golden Pond. Yeah. Norman. Yeah. Norman, <laughs> the loons, the loons, <laughs> the loons, Norman. Oh, uh, the um, oh man, electric, the electric horseman. There's nothing like a horse with Christmas lights on it. Nothing like it. 
I mean, she's she's done a lot of good stuff, but you know, she's also not. She's one of the actresses who's not afraid of putting herself out into the public life for things other than acting, and because of that, I think she's become very divisive with with um, with people. Yeah. yeah, but you know, you watch something like this. I tell you, that scene when she comes in to um, to visit the old man. The first time oh. in the clothes factory, when she walks in and you get that close-up of her, that has to be the most luscious, gorgeous shot of Jane Fonda in in her entire career. I mean, is she not gorgeous in that close-up? She is. She's gorgeous. And, you know, that that scene, that sequence where she is re- retelling uh, her experience at Cannes, which she never actually attended, uh, but right. it's part of her sort of character that she right. plays with this old man, yeah. um, is, you know, some of the best, like most nuanced performance that, that she gives in this film. And which, then... Oh, go ahead. Which, uh, which otherwise... You know, I it, to me the the performance her performance include is, uh, you know, generally wooden, uh, so. which is and and then it is punctuated by some just incredible work. Like that's in, interesting. Yeah. I I wouldn't. I don't think it's wooden at all. <clears throat> I, I I find, but see, I find most of Jane Fonda wooden. Yeah. Uh, I I have a hard time finding her with with much of an emotional range until she has it, and it's just suddenly she's all over the place and and so um you know there there are moments in this movie that i i think are just terrific and and probably made better because i you know find her generally and you know i think you know there there is something to that and and she is not set up well in this movie um and well i i should say that differently her character of brie is set up perfectly in this movie the first time we see her uh, is in a long line of would-be actresses who are yeah. going out for a part, and they're being judged based on superficial, um, you know, uh, elements of 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 just sitting in this chair. You know, she's yeah. got the right color but the wrong hair. She's got bad hands. She's got, mm-hmm. and if you did not, uh, this was in you. You had sent a review. Well, who wrote that review? Um, oh. Uh... This is remember. part of the research that, that which is, I'm going to find this because it was a really astute comment. If you did not know, sorry, if you try to put yourself back in 1971, and in 1971 she was already, you know, she was already a, a name uh, as a, but obviously a young actress. Um, but if you did not know better, none of the women in that lineup looked any more, you know, sort of interesting or beautiful or blockbuster yeah. superstar uh, than she did. And, and so you're, you're almost set up to say, this is a woman who is, you know, she's a dime a dozen. Yeah. Um, Well, and that, and, and that, I was actually going to talk about that shot at the beginning and I, I got sidetracked on, uh, I think telling the, the plot, but I, I, that shot is another perfect example of that tableau where you've got this wide shot of just all of these, these actresses, you know, wannabe actresses, you know, in a row at the bottom of the frame and then above them you have three enormous like art photos of some woman or something just like hovering mm-hmm. over their heads in this really fascinating composition and then like you said you've got these um these you know producers basically judging them it's it's a fantastic introduction to a character i think it really sets up exactly you know the nature of 
her world. You know, she's this, you know, trying to break free of this, you know, this this life of being pushed down by all of these people. Tim Brayton. Tim, yes. I'm looking at his page right now. I hard, didn't hard to actually name. find his name. I know. This is some some blog that we found. And, well, it's I mean he's been he's been doing film review and critique for since 2005 and it's a it's um it's a very um it's a very well-written site. Uh mm-hmm. Antagony and Ecstasy. Um, yeah, and he he went through and reviewed every single one of uh Alan J. Pakula's films. Bold move. Yeah. For Tim, that yeah, it was it is a a terrifically written site, and and you know major kudos for that particular review of Clute. It's uh, uh it is a a really well spoken and well written critique of the movie. It is yeah. definitely is. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, I'm I I'm good. You know, one one yeah. last thing, which also you know just uh, another moment, just to um, mention Jane Fonda, but I think. An amazingly powerful moment for me when I watch her in this film is when she goes back to the old man's shop, the the you know the clothing making shop, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he she you know he she calls him and says, "Hey, can I come over?" He says, "Yeah, uh, in half hour." And she comes over and he's gone, and um, his secretary said he took off fifteen minutes ago, and he's left an envelope for her with 50 bucks in it and no note, which is just like the ultimate, the ultimate put off, you know? I mean, that's, that's exactly a defining moment for her as to the world that she's in is like, even the people that she think might have some, um, ounce of, of compassion for her really don't it for them. All it is, is just about, uh, buying the trick. Absolutely. Absolutely. she, yeah. No, I mean, and, and, you know, as much as I, I find, you know, everything since Barbarella wooden of Jane Fonda's, that's, that's not entirely true. And I find <laughs> she did a, yeah. uh, you know, she, I think she did a great job in this movie. And, and I think her emotional highs are, are really, um, you know, mark a terrific performance. And she, so she did win the, the uh, best actress, um, yeah. Oscar for this and her, speech is it is it okay to say that it is the shortest or certainly one of the shortest in movie history um, is it i didn't know that yeah the it's it's an easy one to quote thank you thank you very much members of the academy thank you for all who applauded there's a great deal to say and i'm not going to say it tonight i would just like to really thank you very much huh that's it that's very nice <laughs> <laughs> short and sweet and to the point short and sweet and to the point uh yeah no i this is a terrific movie i you know and so i started by saying i don't have any nostalgia for the 1970s and i still really don't i i i i have a hard time <laughs> no i just you know i and we're gonna do more 70s movies and i think i think it is fair to say that i dislike the the uh i dislike the time uh, but I do. Uh, there's a lot to love about the movies. Yeah. Some well, you know, inevitably you're watching one of these 70s movies and all of a sudden you're thrust into a disco scene. You know? oh, <laughs> that's, my goodness. And that's when it becomes the hardest. When all of a sudden you're like you're listening to that that just horrible disco music and you've got that that scene. And, you know, it, it is what it is. You, you get used to it. But 
Yeah. You just acknowledge that's just part that's all part and parcel with the uh, with the decade. Are we ever gonna do you think we're ever gonna do Blue Thunder? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's on, on our list. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't remember a single thing about that. Come on, Jaffo. <laughs> I don't remember a single I'm not even sure if I've ever seen that. <gasps> I know. What? No, I know I have. I just can't remember it at all. I confuse it, and there was another helicopter movie right around the same time. Airwolf? No, that's a TV TV show. show. No, there was another one. Uh, No, this was the helicopter movie. This was the fantastic Roy Scheider (laughs) helicopter movie. I just have to say again, the 70s was his decade. I mean... (laughs) Good Lord. From beginning to end, he was in so many good movies. Totally. All right. So next yeah. week we're going to do the Parallax View. Yeah. We're going to do the whole Paranoia Trilogy. And um, uh, and and then, you know, the one I, you know, I'm st- I'm looking forward to uh, the most, obviously, is um, is the third in the Paranoia tri- Trilogy, the uh, uh, All of the President's Men. Yes. Oh, one thing that we didn't mention about this <laughs> is that it was nominated for an Oscar for... Uh, best original screenplay also by the brothers Andy and Dave Lewis. They are real brothers. They are real brothers who uh, who were basically started, I think, writing commercials and then moved into writing TV shows in the fifties and wrote lots of old like Western TV shows and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, very few features. Um. And then that was kind of the end. I think um, Andy Lewis, after shortly after Clute, uh, decided to just get out of the business, and that was it for him. And uh, his brother Dave stuck in a little longer, but not too much. So it's interesting. Wow. I, I'm interested to learn more about those brothers. Absolutely. Terrific movie. Yes. Where can, All right, uh, man. Where can, where can people – you got to say where people can find you. Oh, yeah. We you didn't do, do our thing. We didn't do any shtick. of the thing. I know. Uh, at the Movie Monkey on Twitter. All right. And yes. Facebook, the Movie Monkey. And, and Facebook, the Movie Monkey. Do you like which do you, would you prefer? I mean, if you could only do one, it sounds like you would send people to Twitter. You don't you like know, I, people finding you on Facebook then. They can find me on Facebook. That's fine. But um, Twitter is, I think, much more, I think, film focused. But if they just want to be my friend, they can find me on Facebook. <laughs> I love new friends. <laughs> I uh, have no name so clever. I am just Pete Wright uh, everywhere. Twitter. Uh, but you're not just Pete Wright. No, actually, it is Pete Wright. <laughs> yes. You're uh, confuse I know. Pete Wright. All one word. At, uh, at Pete Wright. Uh, on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Pete Wright and um, on Google Plus and uh, pretty much everywhere. So, oh, yeah, Google Plus for yeah. me, too. Defin- I always forget that one. Definitely should head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show or in your favorite uh, pod catcher uh, and uh, subscribe to the show. It actually really helps us. If you're listening to the show on the website, it really helps us if you subscribe. So please do take that step. Subscribe to the show so we can we can actually track uh, you know how many people are actually listening to the show. It helps us uh, helps us out as we look at um, you know sponsors on the Rashpixel.tv network, and you can catch all the other shows on Rashpixel.tv. Uh, uh, Rashpixel.tv. It's that easy. Go there and find some other shows. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that, as they say, is that. 
is that. Yeah. Thanks for a uh, thanks for a good chat. This yes. is a, this is good to get back into this movie. I'm I'm glad to have done it. Yeah, me too. I'm yeah. I'm glad to have watched it again, and uh, I look forward to talking about the next two. Can't wait. Catch you next week. All right. Bye. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.